Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. See you next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. Hope everyone is having a fantastic day. In today's podcast, we're going to spend some more time talking about one of my favorite topics, and that is called 100 Baggers. Okay. And you have the book over there, 100 to 1 in the Stock Market. We've yes. dedicated a couple podcast um, uh, to this topic, but uh, it's been on my mind lately because I've been rereading uh, these books uh, this past weekend. And that's something that I actually like to do and we've talked about it. Mm. You'd be very surprised if you reread a book that you ha maybe read you know, two or three years ago, how much yeah. more you'll take away from it today if you've been alone uh, learning along the way. So I definitely recommend everybody to do that. Um, but the topic of 100 baggers obviously is great because we're looking to turn a dollar into 100, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this uh, one thing I really like about it is the coffee can portfolio, which he talks a lot about in here. We've talked a lot about this on the podcast. Actually, here you go. You'll like this. Somebody tweeted at me, I think. So he runs his own portfolio and he sends out a letter publicly okay. and he said that he's going to implement the coffee can portfolio method for his portfolio going forward and he referenced us in the letter oh good uh, from listening to our podcast and he thinks it's a, a great role from him and i was there was another person i was reading um this past weekend and he was saying what he does is he keeps a coffee can actually on like a bookshelf by his computer to Good. always just remind him to uh you know yeah buffett had it easier he had physical certificates so he did and <laughs> you know it's a lot easier yeah you i mean you were talking about we recorded a video for our app at focuscompound.com slash app um how if you were running personal money you would it's like the way you described it you wouldn't even think about it as a portfolio right you said i would come up with one new idea a year I would mm -hmm. invest the money in there. Mm -hmm. And then the following year, I would try to find another idea and invest new money in there. Sure. And you're like, no, I, I would never sell because if it was a bad investment, it would just be, you know, over time be worth nothing or a very small amount. And hopefully the winners would make up such a bigger amount of the whole portfolio. Right. And that, and that is to, assuming that for most people, they're investing from like income that comes in each year and stuff. Yeah. Obviously, it'd be different if you had an inheritance or something like that. For, for professionals, it's almost impossible to do this. Yeah. But for individuals, it's more possible than you think because a lot of people may be saving fairly stable amounts of money over time and stuff. Mm -hmm. They're unlikely to get very big one-time payments of stuff that they want to save, but they are likely to want to save every month, every year, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one thing I've been doing recently is going through this book because in okay. the back of the book, he has a table, uh, and this is Hunter Baggers I'm referencing, with 300 and something, maybe 350 companies um, that were yeah. classified as 100 Baggers. And then he, you know, says how long it took for them to reach 100 Baggers status. Okay. Um, but earlier in the book, on page 47, if you have the book yourself, he has a, ta a table for the fastest to 100 Bagger uh, status, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he lists these companies. So I was looking at a few different companies, which I tweeted out, you know, about monster. You and I, we just talked about gross margins in the previous podcast, uh, Jack Henry, right. That's a payment processor. Yes. We've talked about mm -hmm. payment processors before. And you said like, you think, oh, I believe all of, is, that, is, all of the ones that are still left yeah. of the made the, the three or four biggest, mm -hmm. I believe all were hundred baggers if by my math. Yeah. yeah. Valiant pharmaceuticals is on here. It took them 6.5 years to reach a hundred bagger. Yeah. What's interesting is some of the ones that are, uh, if you notice the things that are fastest to hundred baggers tend to have a higher possibility of mm -hmm. collapsing after that. The slower ones seem to have held up better to me. Yeah. Um, but he talks about this, you know, uh, this two engine approach to a hundred bagger. So you get okay. sales growth and then you also get the multiple expansion. Sure. And I was looking at Domino's pizza and I actually tweeted out 
uh, in 2008, they were like a $250 million market cap. Today, they are $16 billion market cap. Here's what's crazy, though, is that, yes, they've had good top line growth. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it has been like, I wouldn't call it like absolutely Amazon type incredible, but it's been good. You know, sometimes right. double digits, sometimes not, uh, but always positive. But their PE went from three to today. It's 36 times. Right. You know, so that's where you could get these massive returns um, as well. But uh, I thought it was interesting rereading this book. He goes through different, you know, philosophies on or different principles on, you know, what was sort of the common theme in all these time baggers that he studied. Uh, I think the most important one, and even from our experience, I, mm -hmm. I totally agree with this. It's owner operators are running the business. Okay. So, you know, they have a lot of their personal capital invested in the company maybe their salary is a lot smaller than like mm -hmm. the amount of equity that they have in the business. Um, you know, but then of course, if you have all that stuff and it's a, the right people running it with the right gross margins, um, it's the industry that it's in is very important. The industry that's in is obviously very important because there's some in which all the major ones that are left seem to have become hunter baggers basically. Yeah. I mentioned that in this book, the 70, the one from the seventies, virtually all of the really big timber companies were all hunter baggers. And that had in part to do with inflation and stuff like that. And also in part having to do with starting the great depression. But, um, uh, that was noticeable. A bunch of things that had to do with benefiting from inflation, a bunch of financial services, things, all of them became hunter baggers. But, but I mean, like information services, like we were talking about with core processing and stuff like that, not necessarily the actual banks and insurers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so he, different principles. I'm on a one or uh, page 173. Obviously, you have to look for them. Um, growth, growth, and more growth. What else does he have in here? That's pretty interesting. Lower multiples preferred. And then he talked about, you know, the double whammy of having low multiple and high sales growth, but mm -hmm. then getting that, you know, uh, multiple re-rating over time. Economic moats are a necessity. Right. We did a video on moats. Um, yeah. If there's a company that's, you know, great, especially. OK, so like let's talk about that. Right. So we were just saying that you need sort of a pathway to being a hundred bagger. OK. Uh, which basically means that the industry has to be big. How do you deal with competition sure. when it comes to that, though? You know, is it really uh, because if the industry is big, there's a bunch of other players in there. Well, that's the problem with hundred baggers. A lot of them go broke. So it doesn't work as a strategy to buy everything in it. For example, if a car company shows up a hundred baggers, um, it wouldn't make sense. There were too many publicly traded car companies. So actually you would have lost money if you just bet on all the car companies. Mm -hmm. Now that's not true in core processing. It's not true in some other things. You could have bet on all of them and it would have worked out fine. The regional businesses. Right. But, yeah. but retail would have had that problem sometimes. So although you see this one, you forget how many were successful. So maybe KFC was successful, but I can think of three or four different fried chicken companies that were public and went broke. So, um, th that's the trade off there. Um, because you have too much competition. So that is a big issue. Uh, I mean, I think realistically, 10 baggers are more likely for people as a thing to target. There are companies that could be 100 baggers. We talked about a company that I was investing in stuff um, from the, you know, whatever, the late 90s or whatever that would have been a 100 bagger. I mean, is for those who bought it and kept it. But uh, way more common is like 10 baggers. A 10 bagger, for those who don't know, you would have to go up about 15 to 16. Uh, no, it would have to go up about 16 to 17% a year for 15 straight oh, years. You want the math on that? Don't worry, I got that. <laughs> I tweeted that out actually today because I've been thinking is a it? lot about this. Hold on, where are we at here? Here we go. Math 17% for 15 yeah. years. Yeah. So I think that's realistic because I have the math right here for mm -hmm. 100 baggers. 
Okay. Yeah, I think that's realistic. Some of the others I think are not so realistic. We can find companies that have grown at those sorts of rates, but they're disturbing in the way in which it happened. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in that his list of the ones who got there the fastest, there's some issues with them. I mean, we won't read all their names, but Valiant is an example because that's already resulted in, in, you know, it already, people know what happened there, but the other names on that list have similar issues. Uh, they either got to be way too expensive or they were some sort of weird acquisition things that got there that fast. Yeah. So I pull up the market cap and compared it on the income statement for Jack Henry. Um, and you could see like a, their, their revenue has also grown, but the market capitalization of the company has just grown so much since 2001, it was 2 billion today or as of yeah if this is updated today uh 10.3 billion right and and also note that shares outstanding fell from 92 million to 77 million some companies and they talk about in the book do buy back their stock um whether stock buybacks are useful or not for hunter baggers is a little complicated one of the best examples is like teledyne teledyne did acquisitions and stuff using its stock and then bought it back later usually it'll come a phase in a company's history where it would make sense for them to stop acquiring and stuff and to start buying back mm-hmm. and so that would help um a lot of the companies uh, if you look a lot of the companies are in things where you either invested before you bought into the company. So before the company from now to become a hundred bagger already bought the stuff it needs or it doesn't need anything to grow. So companies that require a lot of new capital being put in are less likely to be able to become hundred baggers. Uh, I mean, it will take a very, very long time for them to become hundred baggers. So it might surprise people that way. So a company like uh, an AT&T or something takes a very, very long time to become a hundred bagger because it has low returns on its invested capital. Whereas if you have things like um, the core processors, they have very high returns on invested capital. They require very little capital to grow. Mm. Um, Advertising agencies, media companies, things like that. But in addition to that, you can also have the situation, which we haven't had recently, but see, if you're an asset-heavy company, that's fine if you have high inflation. So, see, if you go out and buy lots of new mines, lots of new um, uh, forest land, whatever, then you would have problems. But if you've already invested in a lot of that up front, you'll become a hundred bagger. So you can even have utilities, regulated utilities could be a hundred bagger if inflation was high enough. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see differences in this book that goes in the 70s versus that book that goes 40 years later because of the rates of inflation. Where if we had high inflation again in the future, you'd start seeing hundred baggers that are asset heavy. Whereas now you can't see that because that wouldn't happen um, without high inflation. Mm-hmm. So you need either one of those that they've already invested in the infl- in uh, assets or that they don't require that much capital. So in other words, they have high returns on invested capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I pulled up Domino's yeah. right here. So you could even see, right? So the gross margins have always been you know, somewhat stable. Um, I guess we could probably go back to 2010. We could do 2008, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, their, P, their PE in 2008 was about five times. And this isn't even updated as of today. It's it's 36. And the more useful thing to use is price to sales. I always say that. Why is that? Uh, just because it's more stable. I mean, mm-hmm. I would always value business based on price to sales. I would never use price to earnings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would look at the business and decide what kind of normal margins I think they have and stuff. But I would never, ever think in my own minds in terms of price to earnings. There's just no point because those earnings will vary a little from year to year. Um, so if you look at that, which I think is a better indicator, you're talking about at times tripling or more the the price that people are paying. And what really matters, of course, is EV to sales and things like that. And, yeah. uh, you know, about the actual company itself, too. I mean, look at the return capital employed and the return on tangible capital. 
mm-hmm. it's always been like just exceptional yeah this business and so domino's obviously a big factor here yeah we could check the quick fs things but it was very cheap um when the, there were some concerns about it whatever like 12 years ago or, or however long ago and then it's very expensive today mm-hmm. and so that's also a factor in it and so there does come a point in a, in a, a hundred bagger or a 10 bagger or whatever of them getting to a price that probably is going to cause problems and that's the hardest part right of owning it uh, yeah 100 ba- or like i mean you mean to be you try to get the 100 out yeah, of it but it's yeah actually holding it right when yeah. it's gone up so yeah much. so we can look at the quick fs for dominoes to get an idea on that um if we look at their prices right now Domino's pizza. So that's pretty tough. I mean, that it's an EV to EBITDA of about 30. Um, so less than Chipotle. Yeah, yeah. I just compare everything to Chipotle now. Um, and the market cap is, uh, yeah, actually that, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's smaller. Mm-hmm. It's smaller in terms of its revenue and stuff. But of course, the actual system-wide sales are bigger. And that's the thing, right? So you could look at this and be like, well, it's, it's much more successful internationally. Yeah. The concept travels way better than Chipotle. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a problem. I don't know that people around the world want Mexican food, but they do want pizza. Pizza has proven to be able to travel very well into all One sorts bite. of countries. Yeah. So, um, uh, whereas, you know, other sorts of things don't are, are more country specific. But how would you ever hold this stock then? You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like to get the hunter bagger, that would be so hard because you could look at this situation and be like, well, I'm up, you know. 10 to 20 times or whatever on my original investment if you've held it for a very long time. I mean, how do you, you know, I mean, well, that's what, that's the hardest part, right? They talk about this a lot. I mean, is it really as long as management keeps executing, as long as they keep growing, as long as like the return capitals are still good? I mean, what do you do in that situation? Well, I don't know how hard this one would be except for price. It, it did except, I mean, it, it did generally have higher earnings year after year. Um, all the core numbers that I would look at were getting better. I mean, we did a thing about gross profit. What I'm seeing here, we could look at the 20-year thing, though, is that you're not seeing any company-specific declines in gross profit. You just see a decline when there's, like, a huge recession, um, affecting gross profit a bit. Um, like, if we look, so we have, this is 20 years, right? So yeah. if we go up to the top, just, like, actual gross profit, right? So... I mean, the only, I mean, there are some years that could concern you, I guess, there, if we look early on. Where it starts to change is coming in like after the recession. So before then, we see things that it doesn't look like they're making a lot of progress. But then when you have 2008, 2009, from that point on, it's hitting all the things that when I read an earnings release and stuff, I like to see. Um, like what? I mean, just for instance, gross profit growth. Mm-hmm. Year after year, gross profit is going up while they're not putting more and more money into the business because it's so capital light. So that's terrific. Most businesses have trouble with it, having that long a streak of continual gross profit growth that you have there, right? Mm-hmm. And then, the, so what would worry me about Domino's that I might have sold out and stuff looking at this? Um, there's two potential factors that we could look at. One is, are they borrowing too much money or something like that? Are they being too aggressive financially? And two is, is the market valuing them at too crazy a price? Okay. If I held it in a managed account, certainly, and probably in a fund, I would be likely to sell it because of price at some point. Not probably safety of the company. We could get into that, but I just don't think the safety is necessarily as big a deal. So, I mean, but what's a crazy price? From well, looking at their history. 
I know I this mean, is a lot of like survivorship and hindsight bias, blah, 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 blah. But when you say from looking at it, you think you would have sold because of price. Right. Well, I mean, let's do it this way. It's at 30 times EBITDA right now. At 30 times EBITDA, you get no return basically from the EBITDA part of it. So if you look, 30 times EBITDA is going to be less than a 2% return in terms of free cash flow generally. Uh, Companies like this can be a little more complicated in terms of what the free cash flow will be because they're franchise things and whatever. But just as a rule, that's what it means. So um, it means that it's virtually nil. So all you get is growth. Well, this concept doesn't grow at some incredible rate worldwide in terms of how much. It's it's all market share growth, which is great. That's the Peter Lynch thing. But because of that, unless this company is growing 10% or more a year, your returns are not going to beat that. So it's very hard for Domino's, even if it executes everything perfectly from this point on, to be a better than 10% a year stock. Okay? So would I sell it and buy something else? Maybe. Because it's it's just very expensive. Mm-hmm. I do think that when you get to about that level, um, I don't know exactly where that level is, but about eh, so you have to be at somewhat more than thirty times free cash flow. I don't know if it's thirty times, if it's fifty times, if it's a hundred times. You could argue over all those, but it's some level there that starts to be an issue. Certainly if it isn't at that level and you could use EBITDA to be safer and whatever, but we've seen companies before that hit 30 times EBITDA. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to ever get a decent return in company at 30 times EBITDA, unless that company is going to grow very, very fast because the whole market's going to grow fast and stuff like that. So if someone said to me, Oh, zoom is a bargain at 30 times EBITDA. Well, I can't say one way or the other. If it is, it's a totally new industry, you know? Um, but pizza isn't. And so if it only grows at 10% a year, I don't think your returns are going to be better than 10% a year um, because eventually that that will come down. But I think the same thing of Chipotle, same thing of FICO. So you could hold them for a long time, but would I sell them now? If I was running money for someone else, I would. Um, as far as would you keep it? Would some people keep it all the way to the top? Yes. Some investors would. Warren Buffett would. Um, ben Graham kept Geico no matter what. He never sold shares and stuff of it. And it's because you got it in a special way. So you think of it as like a different kind of investment. It could be that the investment is illiquid for you. It could be that you bought it in an IPO or something and decided never to sell it. It, it can be things like that. Uh, that you, for whatever reason, you just thought of it as a permanent investment. Um, and then, you you know, you do fine with that. Like I do know someone who invested in, like they mentioned utilities that were like 100 baggers, who invested in regular utilities and kept them the whole time. Like people ask, well, when did they sell them and stuff? No, they bought them and then just collected the dividend, but never sold a share of the actual underlying thing. So they did benefit from the fact that inflation was double digits and stuff because that was their approach. They would never sell a share because the dividends were high enough to live off of, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was just their practice forever was never sell a share. There are some people who don't sell shares of certain kinds of companies. Buffett didn't sell Coke when it got to be too high priced and they could see it was too high priced. Um, Why do you think he didn't sell Coke? I don't know. Uh, he had made a lot of comments about it and stuff, so it gets harder to sell it mm-hmm. at that point. He's sort of gotten a reputation as a buy and hold forever person, but also it's such a big investment. I mean, that's kind of the problem he has now with Apple or something. If Apple got to a ridiculous price, what would be the point of selling it? 
because it would actually be Better a really ridiculous price because well, his what opportunity could you, cost what could, so you t- what could you take it in and put it into something else yeah and so you know you're going to get a worse business from it but would you find a business that's so much cheaper that's of that size is the problem so um what we're talking about here really is the davis double play right so we talked about that in that book about the davis dynasty and the idea is you buy something that has a fairly low pe and that has growth but you don't need the growth to be fantastic so giving the example that i think is more realistic for people is a 10 bagger a 10 bagger in 15 years is about 17 percent all you need is a 10 percent growth rate at the company if you can get 7% a year in margin expansion. And mm-hmm. 7% a year in margin expansion is not too hard to come by. It's not impossible. So if we go to like, um, you could go to MoneyChimp or something so we can show some people what I mean. Like, let's take an example. Let's say I was saying it's not impossible to get, uh, let's say 13 times earn it. Yeah, let's do 10, 10 times PE. If you go from a 10 PE to a 25, okay, over 15 years, you get 6.3%. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, even if I did 13, we could do 13. 13 is kind of like, uh, it's where value investors will kind of say that's a normal price or something, sure. right? So they won't think of it as cheap. They might think 10 is cheap, but 13 is not. You still get 4.5% a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you only need earnings per share to grow by about 12.5% for you to get a 10 bagger in, in um, 15 years. And so it makes a real big difference. The reverse is also true, of course. You could have something that grows as low as 4.5% if the multiple expands that much. That's sure. tougher to come by. But I've had those. So I had one that went from about 5 to 25 in terms of PE at one point. Really? Yeah. And so um, those do happen. Uh, now, what happened at that company, though, to get that? Because does it become like a self-fulfilling prophecy where if they're showing good growth or maybe they're growing EBITDA or gross profit or free cash flow that over time the market starts to reward that growth with a higher multiple? I mean, what happened for it to go from? I mean, that's such a drastic change where that's not, there has to be mm-hmm. something fundamental with the company, not, oh, wow, this is a deep value stock that <laughs> Le- no one. Less than you think, we can do the company. So it's VLGEA, oh, okay. Village. That's one example. Uh, and we can have 20 year numbers. So we're getting to a little bit further away. So um, if we go there, we. Okay. So if you download it, you get the 20 year numbers. How great is this software? Quick FS. Okay. It came from Focus Compound. So if we, if we look, we can go to the key ratios as an example. Okay. So I don't know how far it goes back here, 2000. So we can see what the PE and stuff was in, in back then. That's a little earlier. Right. There we go. 4.6. 4. Yeah. yeah. Uh, price to sales was 0.6. Right. Yep. Yep. So price to sales is only doubled. The change is in the margins. Oh, is it only doubled? Let's see. No, it's quadrupled mm-hmm. yeah so because of that it the, the main reason is that the market cap increased like tenfold or whatever so there was liquidity it's a mostly illiquid stock because the the um management also owns shares of the b shares and stuff so there's not as much a shares as you think so the things that changed are things like it didn't pay a dividend then started paying a dividend um it it had numbers that were a little bit different if we go up though not drastically different for instance it wasn't terribly imperiled like some people would think in terms of like debt to assets and things like that, it wasn't it wasn't super distressed. And if you look, return on tangible capital employed, this is the shocking thing. How much has that changed over time? It's gone down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's gone from people listening 17% to 9.1%. Yeah. So answer is, I don't know. They just weren't paying attention to it. Yeah. Huh. I mean, the, the base economics of it, I worked in the store. The basic economics of it I've 20 years ago and today. ShopRite. Yeah, the one in Maryland, yeah, or one of their ones in Maryland, uh, are not as dramatically different as you think. I have no idea hmm. why people when like it so much at. better now and hated it then uh, about 
12, no, 13, 14 years ago, 2006. So you know the funny thing is, I think this is the company that the most amount of people talk about if like when it comes to you be like oh yeah i bought village supermarkets because you wrote about it like right. a long time ago but look at all these things like operating margins and things now i'm being a little unfair gross margins got a little bit better whatever i'm being a little bit unfair because they did clean up some things right before then okay so i get there's some explanation for why in the late 1990s there could be more problems yeah okay they did have a couple stores that they they cleared up they at one point owned like a liquor store or something they had some things in pennsylvania they refocused the business a little bit um and some stuff like that. But cash has significantly gone up. Cash has gone up tremendously. And that yeah. even underestimates it because if you look at another item on their balance sheet, they actually are fronting wake for a lot of money and stuff. But we can look at another one. So J&J Snack Foods, JJSF. So also I'm trying to do pretty simple ones. Like that's a supermarket. Mm -hmm. This is, this sells, you know, the, the, this is the company that has the icy machines, super pretzel, that brand. Um, so, you know, uh, if we look at their key ratios, it's not as dramatic, but um, but like, why was that a five PE? Yeah, let's see. JJ Snack Foods. So, wouldn't you buy this? Same thing. About there. So, yeah, so about eleven times earnings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now, what is it? Probably thirty times earnings. Thirty-eight. Yeah. Well, that was that. We could see what it's actually at right now. Okay. Seafood. <laughs> 66 times oh but that's probably because it's spiked because their earnings probably dropped this uh, year yeah, because of covid yeah. because mm -hmm. they're at sporting events and movie mm -hmm. theaters and things like that so they'll have their first huge drop in a long time but if we look return on tangible cap employed yeah it's only it, gotten it, a little better it, it got, got better and then it, it got worse margins growth it was when i bought it it had grown every year for we don't have it going back there but i think it had already been 15 straight years it grew and now did it ever decline it may have broken its streak in, at some point in revenue growth yeah revenue growth would be right here year over year um no it doesn't look like so it's probably decline. 30 years it's grown every year in terms of revenue wow. and then it generally grows earnings per share but like there's that's a little bit lumpier but still it would be pretty much you know except for when there's special items it, it wouldn't have problems there so it grows almost every year so the history of that but like for instance look price to book is less than one why mm -hmm. was the food company selling like that now i'm being unfair because those two things there was good reason i mean not good reason stupid reason but um it was the internet craze Mm. So no, no one, one wanted, no, no one cared. So no one wanted to touch a supermarket company or a food, um, uh, boring food company because all the money was going into other things. So when the money gets sucked away to other things, there's only so much money to go around. It causes other assets to drop down. If everyone goes into a big housing boom, unless you create a bunch of money, you know, unless the Fed creates a bunch of money and then it goes to banks and then they lend it out and all that, that money comes from somewhere. And that's what happened with stocks. You know, if you have certain stocks rising a lot faster than the amount of assets people are putting into stocks, then other stocks have to be falling. That's mm -hmm. the only way that it can work. It's gone from a market cap in 2000 of 110 million to 3.6 billion. Well, that was at the end of that period. What's it right now? Uh, 2.47 so billion. A, yeah. yeah. So I mentioned those because the companies, that's the other thing. People look at the companies now and they think of them as like legitimate and whatever things. But remember, when I was looking at the company, it was a $100 million company. Mm -hmm. And that's what people forget. So you can look. And I don't know that other companies will ever reach that level. They, they had a really good manager. And they had a really good idea of what they were going to do. Um, the gross margins gotten worse and worse because of what they went into. Um, but... <sighs> 
So, like, I don't know that a um, Mama Mancini uh, or a Armanino, so those are ones that are similar sized uh, in terms of sales Celsius or something, will grow to be the whatever that is, 36 times growth in market cap in 20 years that J&J did. J&J was a little bit more interesting in terms of what things they owned. Um, but they could. Mm-hmm. Like people have a tendency to think that hundred million dollar stock or whatever is going to stay that forever. is going to stay, and also just like in their mind, um, that because it's that size and everything, uh, like I don't remember the exact things they would have owned at that time, but some things they've owned in the past are like um, that they own from pretty early on is Super Pretzel. Which you would recognize as the leading oh, pretzel I brand, Luigi's Italian Ice. Yeah, these things. I loved them growing up. Yeah, they would never let me eat them though because it was like too much sugar. Okay, supposedly. Um, and, and things like that, and so they would have had brands like that from fairly early on. That yeah. that was early in their history, and if anything, they went more and more into supermarkets and stuff, icy things like that. Um, and so, like I said, over time they went more into supermarkets and things, and more into things that would have been a little bit more competitive. I how this compares to Hostess brands. Uh, but yeah, so like when we talk about that, why do people value at that high in one period and then lower oh. in another? Over a twenty-year period, it changes a lot, and I think people underestimate that. That's been my experience. When they'll be like, "Well, why would they ever value this company a lot higher?" Yeah, it just happens. And it happens. Now, it happens if they're success. If they're a successful company, if you look at it as a business, I'm not talking about like um, we're not talking about Maui Land and Pineapple or something where it's just an asset play yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. They were eventually. They'll just eventually people will just look at Village and be like, "Well, it's kind of like Kroger." Right, you went to the things. The stores look like Kroger. It, I felt like I was in a Kroger. Yeah, I said so. That. Kroger is is um, let's see, Kroger is a hundred times the size of Village or something like that. Uh, what is it? Yeah, hundred a hundred times the size. Uh, but eventually, people will just see them as sort of the same way. Like, look, there's the EV to EBITDA, EV to sales. So zero point three, six point eight. Uh, there we go. So let's put in Village now. And by the way, the Village has higher returns on capital than than Kroger and always has, but because it owns better locations. It's, it's not their fault. Uh, I think Kroger's better run than Village, actually. Um, but uh, it, but Kroger would rather swap some of its locations for Villages, you know? But anyway, it's just, um, yeah, the EVD, but I think because they have a lot of cash. But if we put aside those sorts of things, it's fairly, you know, fairly valued as a normal supermarket now whereas it was valued as like a dodgy market micro cap mm-hmm. you know what i mean and it already owned a lot of things i mean the brand's been around forever in the area all the stores have been around for decades all that it wasn't anything new but it just valued that way and the same thing with like jj snack foods when a company's 100 million dollars or less people see it as not a legitimate business and stuff so yeah. you just have to sort those out from the others and then when they come a billion dollar company everyone will buy them like the things that you like about a business when it's $100 million, everyone will recognize and bid up three, four times the price. So when you find it a P of 10, people will pay a P of 30 for it. Because if it was larger. If yeah. it was a billion dollar yeah. company, because mm-hmm. then they say, oh, it's a food company or, oh, it's a whatever company. Well, we've talked about that, right? And there's been situations, even our career, where mm-hmm. um, people will be like, how would you how would you think about that valuation? And we're like, well, we valued it based on you know what a private buyer would pay, not on the fact that it's a micro cap. You know what I'm right. saying? Like if, if a logical private buyer, if like a, a private equity guy was to come and bid for this company, he'd probably buy it for or make a bid for this amount. Um, he wouldn't look at it, you know, what the market is valuing it at and, you know, sort of 
discount it because it's a micro cap. Right. But it has to be a company that's not going to be like picked apart for, you know, each of its parts or liquidated or something like that. It has to be something that's going to grow. Not a lot, but something that 20 years later will be bigger and more profitable with their earnings growing each year. We picked some companies just now that we said that basically tended for the at least the first 10 years of that period to report somewhat higher earnings all the time. Mm-hmm. Once a company puts together a string of 10 or 20 years of higher earnings all the time, eventually it'll get that P of like 30 or something. And when it gets more size, but both of those things will happen over a long history of that. So you have to find a company that like you think is a high quality business yeah, and buy it at a low PE. But that's the thing. I mean, it was very recent. It hadn't had a lot of years of that in a row, but as of that year, like a magic formula would have shown up village because we're talking about a stock with a P of five that had higher returns on invested capital than like it does now, basically everyone in the industry. So it was probably like the cheapest, uh, one of the cheaper supermarkets you could find. And it had better returns than all, you know, on turn and then all the other supermarkets and J&J snack foods throughout all of its history has grown as faster, faster than the big food companies and has similar returns and stuff. But you know, it's people would have to go and find it. Like, you know, you can know about Kraft and Kellogg and stuff, but it's harder to find a hundred million dollar company. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Um, if you do follow our YouTube, you'll also see that every now and then I do upload a sample from our app, uh, videos that get uploaded to the app. That is just a sample, but we do upload frequent videos like that. Um, uh, I would say good, you know, handful times a week. Um, so make sure you go to focuscompounding.com slash app. Everybody else, thank you so much for tuning in. A rating and review goes a very long way for us on the podcast side of things as well. And we appreciate all the support and we will see you in the next podcast.